Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open in prayer. Avinu Makino, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you that you have brought us together once again during this special time. Not special necessarily because we're meeting to talk about the book of Galatians, but special because we're right in the middle of the fall festivals. We've just experienced Yom Tov. Rosh Hashanah, the Festival of Trumpets, and we have heard your trumpet blast. We have listened to the shofar sound, and we are waiting, Lord, to hear what you will say to us, what you will speak to us, how you will instruct us. During these special times, Lord, we know that you have promised that you would uh, give us a special sense of closeness, and that you have... um, also demonstrated over and over that you are doing uh, something uh, mightily during these special times. We don't always know exactly what's uh, happening and how these uh, festivals correspond with uh, events that are taking place uh, in the earth today, but we know that it's your calendar, and we know that they are your appointments, and that they are um, times that you have commanded Israel to declare as uh, set-apart times, and uh, we recognize that your son, Messiah, Yeshua, is the one who is is giving the meaning and the fullness to these special times. And so, Lord, we're just here to listen and to wait attentively on whatever the Spirit's saying during these times. Uh, so give us a heart to understand, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see uh, what you are uh, doing and speaking and saying during these times. And we'll uh, Lord, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. All right, well, uh, I'd like to welcome everyone out once again to another week in Exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher out at Congregation Kehilat Tunavah in Thornton, Colorado. Uh, if you're ever in the Denver area, uh, just north of Denver is Thornton, uh, Westminster area. And if you're ever in the area, just look us up. Uh, we'd love to have you come out and join us on a Saturday. And um, if you need further information, head on out to our website at graftedin.com. That's our congregation home website, and you can find information on uh, the congregation meeting times, service times, class times, uh, message information, um, address, things like that. Uh, Also, if you have internet access, which I hope you do if you're listening to this commentary, right? Um, Find me on the web at www.tatesaytor.com. That's my home I'm sorry, that's my uh, my personal website, my personal teaching site, and that's where you're going to find all the inf- relevant information for the commentaries that I'm putting out. 
uh, to include this commentary to the book of Galatians, where you meet each Saturday evening from about 7 p.m. to about 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. We meet via Skype, <laughs> um, and it's a live internet study. If you are on Skype, then it's live, and I'm coming to you from around the world, on the other side of the world, not necessarily in America. And um, uh, we meet and just discuss the, uh, the commentary notes that I put together. You can find all of the relevant information online right there on my website at Tate Torah. And uh, you can follow along with the written notes as well. If you're not able to make it for the Skype sessions each week, well, then I encourage you, if you're listening to this audio portion, someone maybe gifted it to you or sent you the link, and you're, this is your first time listening. Um, I record each uh, class live. And then after a few days of editing, I upload them to the iTunes store where you can find them. And you can also find them as I upload them to my own website, the Tate Torah site, as well as the Grafted In uh, Congregation site. They're, the audio commentaries are found there as well. So if you're not able to make the Skype uh, sessions each week live, then at least I hope you're able to go out to my site or to iTunes or to the Grafted In site and pick up the audio commentary there. And uh, maybe even subscribe to the podcast, and that way you can uh, make sure you won't miss any week. Okay? Uh, without further ado, I believe we are on week 70... Is this week 74? I want to say it's week 74. Um, let me just double-check real quick. I'm pretty sure it's week 74. If not, we'll make that correction a little later on. Um... I'm heading out to my own personal website now. Also, I want to check on something as far as uh, announcements uh, to make sure we're in the right spot. Those of you who are uh, uh, following along with me week after week, you should uh, already be subscribed to the uh, Galatians Commentary um, newsletter, which allows me to send out the uh, weekly notes as well as allows you to follow along as to when there are um, changes to the schedule. Most of you know that we meet on a 10-week on, 2-week off semester type schedule. We meet for 10 weeks and we take a break for 2 weeks. But um, this week, yes, we're on week 74, but next week is uh, is going to be Yom Kippur. So we will not meet next week. Definitely do not meet next week, just a reminder. Um, take a break uh, because of the high holy day schedule and then we'll pick up again the week after that with uh, week 75 okay so that's all i wanted to really mention all right let's date stamp our recording today is september 23rd 2017 and we're going to be talking about galatians chapter 4 verses 21 through 26 tonight let's jump into our liturgy real quick we got a little bit of a late start because of skype so i'll see if i can accelerate the teaching a little bit tonight um let me just read the liturgy real quick, and I won't, I'll try not to prolong the liturgy. I'll shorten it a little bit. I'll even take out some of the sections that I was going to read. Um, I'm just going to read a, a, a part out of, of the uh, Shema uh, for our liturgy, just the first, uh, the one that the most people are familiar with, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It's the part that most of us are familiar with as the Shema proper. And we'll just read the English out of the 1917 Jewish Publication Society, and then I'll read the Hebrew along with that, okay? All right, uh, the, he, the English reads, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, And you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. 
verse 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart, verse 7. And thou shalt teach them diligently until thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest, risest, <laughs> risest up. That's King James English for you, right? And verse 8, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes. And verse 9, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house and upon thy gates. And the Hebrew of those same verses reads, verse 4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Verse 5, Verse 6, And verse 8, Alright, let's uh, turn to the uh, Apostolic Scriptures and pull up the liturgy there. I'm going to use the uh, studylight.org website again. For those of you who are with me in the Skype class, you can see on your screen I've got the, uh, the familiar-looking busy page that has the Strong's number up top. And then immediately below that, we've got an English translation of the Greek. And then below that, we've got the Greek text of the, uh, I think that's the SBLGNT, Society of Biblical Literature version of the Greek. Uh, and then below that, there's an English translation, uh, kind of a word-for-word -word translation. And then immediately below that, there's the morphology that tells us the part of speech, as well as the mood, the voice, the inflection, and things that the Greek shows up. And we'll just go uh, verse by verse that way. And we're only going to read uh, six verses tonight, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and 26. Just those short six verses, because those are the only six that we're going to be trying to hit tonight. We'll see how far we get. Since we've got a little bit of late start in Skype, I don't know if I'll go a little later or cut it a little short. So we'll see what happens. All right. Um, and for the English, I think I'll go ahead and just read the, the, wooden, the wooden translation, meaning I'm not going to jump over to the ESV. So this means that the um, English that you're going to be hearing is basically a word-for-word -word rendition of the same word order, what we call a syntax, of the Greek. So it's going to sound kind of strange, kind of like the way Yoda might talk, kind of backwards with our nouns and verbs, kind of reversed. But I think you can make sense of it. So the English reads, verse 21, Tell me those under the law wishing to be, the law not do you not listen to? Verse 22, uh, it has been written indeed that Abraham two sons had, one of the slave woman and one of the free woman. Verse 23. But the one indeed of the slave woman, according to flesh, has been born, the one, but of the free woman through this promise. Verse 24. Which things are allegorized, these indeed are. Two covenants, one indeed from Mount Sinai, unto slavery, begetting, which is Hagar. And verse 25, Moreover, Hagar, Sinai, Mount is, in Arabia, corresponds, moreover, to the present Jerusalem. She is in slavery, indeed, with the children of her. And verse 26, And the above Jerusalem free is, who is mother of us. All right, so go back and read the Greek of those same six verses, starting at verse uh, 21 again. 
and this is kind of nice for those of you who are following along with me in the screen. If you can't, if you can't read the Greek script, then you can at least read the uh, maybe the transliteration above. Uh, so, uh, the Greek reads "Legete moi hoi hupanaman thelantes enai ton naman uk akute." Verse twenty-two: Gegraptai Abraham duo huios. I'm sorry, huios esken hena ektes. Paidiskes kai hena ektes lutheras. Verse 23. Al homen ektes paidiskes kata sarka gigenetai. Ho de ektes lutheras. Di tes epangelias. Verse 24. Hatina estin ale gurumena hautai garad esen duo dia thekai mia men apho. Arusina es du leen genosa hetes esten hagar. Verse 25. To de hagar sina oros esten hente arabia. Sustoike de te nun Jerusalem de lue garmeta ton technon autes. And the final pasik, the final verse, verse 26. He da ano Jerusalem, Eleuthera est in hetis est in meter hemon. All right, let's turn to our commentary tonight. As you can see, we're not going to hit a lot of uh, chapter 4. We're just going to be hitting uh, those six verses, uh, if we can. Give me a moment, I'm waiting for my screen to refresh. There we go. Um... And we're right, really, at the beginning of this section where Paul's going to begin to introduce his argument from Scripture once again uh, to kind of get our context from where we left off last week. He just went through this long section where he kind of makes his, uh, what commentators usually call, kind of a motherly appeal to the Galatians. Recall that basically he's been kind of hammering away at them using Scripture and using this uh, metaphor of the slave and the um, uh, the heir, which we we started out with at the beginning of the chapter, the you know the 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 the, the example from Greco-Roman literature, which also builds upon the former example of the um, the boy uh, the boy guide, the uh, the the paedagogos. and so the paedagogos from chapter 3, the last few verses, led us into the kleronomos, the, the air of chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 or so. And then from there, we uh, moved down through this uh, explanation of the idea that um, Paul is trying to get the Galatian uh, readers to understand those who are considering taking on uh, circumcision, Torah observance, and the, the legal Jewish status that all of that entailed. Uh, for the sake of um, covenant membership that was being uh, offered to them by the uh, the agitators, the, the the Judaizers, the influencers, Paul's trying to get them to understand that from a status perspective, from God's point of view, when it comes to status, when it comes to covenant status, when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to salvation, you do not need to add to what you already have. Indeed, in Messiah, you've already arrived at that goal of being counted as righteous, dikaios, uh, I'm sorry. Um, you've already arrived at the goal of dikaios, of being righteous. You've already become 
genuine and lasting covenant members through faith in Messiah. And so you don't need to try and add something to what you already have. And that's where the circumcision of the flesh and the Jewish status and the taking on of Torah observance to be counted among the, the, the group known as Israel, that's where that part is going to uh, uh, present some challenges to his listeners. So Paul's moving through this analogy of airship, sonship, and, and, and um, ownership, and belonging, and, and identity, and things like that. And it is within that that he makes this passionate plea to explain to them that um, they need to stand their ground and not be afraid of the persecution that's going to come that's going to come to them from the both sides. Remember last week, just briefly, we mentioned that there's going to be persecution for the Gentile believers in Paul's day uh, from two sides. On one side, they're going to receive persecution from the Jewish side of the house that is dissatisfied with Gentiles seeking to claim covenant membership and belief in the one God of Israel without taking on legal Jewish status as recognized in the eyes of the Judaisms of Paul's day. So in other words, it's like someone claiming to be a, a member of a group and yet not actually going through the formal membership process that the group imposes on would-be members. Understand what I mean? So the Gentiles are basically saying, we are part of Israel, and yet... We are not physically circumcised like the rest of physical Israel is. We're not going to take on physical uh, physical uh, circumcision, uh, and yet by, uh, by God's standards, we are circumcised Israelites because we've been circumcised in the heart. And so that's going to make those who are physical circumcised Israelites, it's going to make them jealous, it's going to make them upset uh, because these Gentile members are claiming membership in Israel and yet not going through the same uh, initiation rite that they themselves as physically circumcised Jews had to go through. So that's where they're going to receive a little bit of pressure. In fact, it's not going to be a little bit. It's going to be a lot. They're going to receive pressure on that side of the, so, of the, social, uh, of the social camp, right? On, on the right side. On the left side, or on the other side, they're going to receive pressure from their existing... Uh, Greco-Roman families and social groups, because of the fact that they're going to distance themselves as Roman citizens, they're going to distance themselves from all of the um, familiar paganism that they grew up with. They're going to have to say uh, goodbye to the emperor worship and to the, um, as I keep mentioning, all of the, uh, the Saturnalia, which is kind of all the Christmas festivals and things like that. All of the tree worship, all of the sun worship, all of the um, all of the, uh, the 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 paganism that's tied into the idolatry uh, linked to uh, uh, the festivals, the days and months and seasons and years that, that Ro uh, pagan Rome had um, imposed on Roman citizens, uh, the forced emperor worship, uh, the the um, the libations that were required to be poured out in the in the name of the emperor, the prayers that were required to be said, all of the things that you can read about in your history books that that uh, ancient pagan Rome and and uh, Greco-Roman citizens had to p participate in if they were um, expected to be good, upstanding citizens within the Roman society. All of that is going to actually. Um, what should we say? It's going to be a detriment to their new life as Christians because it, the allegiance has been changed. They no longer owe their allegiance to, to the Caesars as a god. They now owe their allegiance to 
God himself, the one true God, and to Yeshua, the Messiah, who is the very Son of God. So Paul's going to ask them to, to go away from that as well, to, to, to have their minds renewed, uh, to, to, to start growing in, in holiness and righteousness and set-apartness and to, to be weaned away from all of the stoichion that we talked about, all of these the superstitious uh, notions of, um, of astrology and, and the, uh, the ideas of, um, that your fate was tied into the, the four elements, the earth, the air, the wind, the fire, and, and there's all this idea of, um, of, ho- of, of special days and lucky days and lucky charms and, and uh, all this other, other uh, uh, you know, magic uh, that, that the, the uh, um, what do we call it, just the basic um, uh, superstition, superstitious world that the Greco-Roman citizens lived in. So Paul's going to say, you need to, you need to clean out, you need some, do some housekeeping, get rid of all that too. But as you leave all of that lifestyle, you know, Rome's not going to be happy without that, that as well. The emperors not, are not just going to roll over and say, oh, really? You guys are monotheists now? And you've decided not to worship me anymore? And you've decided to worship the one true God? Uh, sure, okay, go ahead, we'll let you do that. Nope, Rome, Rome wasn't happy with that. To be sure, Rome didn't allow any new religions to spring up. They saw that, they, they recognized Rome, recognized basically monotheism as a, as um, Judaism. Judaism was monotheistic, and there weren't any other monotheistic religions that were basically allowed in the Roman Emperor. The, the Jews received an exception, and they paid a heavy tax based on, on their exception, and they paid taxes to uh, because they didn't want to worship the Emperor, and they didn't want to pray for the Emperor and pour out libations to the Emperor, but they in fact did uh, get taxed with the Fiscus Judaicus, which is a very heavy tax. Uh, they got taxed on their temple and things like that. And they got taxed for being citizens in Rome uh, or occupiers in Rome, things like that. And they got taxed for not fighting in the wars and things like that. And the, basically they got taxed because they're Jews and because they're monotheists and because they didn't want to to follow along with the, all the emperor worship. And as a result, they enjoyed the freedom of, of having their um, uh, their monotheistic beliefs and, and worshiping the one true God. And so the Gentile Christians who were claiming monotheism and yet at the same time were not converting to become Jews, this put them in the pressure cooker. This put them with the between a rock and a hard place. And that's what Paul kind of goes through for the for the, the verses, uh, the last, say, 10 verses that we didn't really study in my commentary up to verse 20, kind of verse um, 12 through verse 20, that, that good section there, Paul basically tells them, look, you guys need to stay the course here. Don't jump ship and go back over to Rome and don't jump ship and go over to become uh, convert Jews either. Just steer the road right down the middle, steer the ship right down the middle under the power of the spirit. And yes, it's going to be tough, but yes, you can make it. And it is within that context that we move now back into verse 21, where Paul turns back again to this um, discussion about the Gentiles' preoccupation with coming under the, um, the what we've been titling uh, uh, covenantal nomism, which is this idea of law-keeping done for the sake of demonstrating covenant membership within Israel. All right? The whole works of the law concept was this group membership that was defined uh, exclusively by Israel and by Jewish Israel, and therefore they had essentially um, put boundary markers or limits, limitations on Torah observance for Jews only, and covenant membership for Jews only, and uh, salvation for Jews only, uh, spirit 
activity for Jews only, belief in God for Jews only. In a word, it was a Jewish-only uh, membership, a members-only club, a Jewish-only club. And what I mean is, when I say Jewish, I mean uh, ethnic Jews or convert Jews only. No Gentiles were allowed in the group. You could, you could, you could stroll through the store uh, and, uh, or, or to use a metaphor of, of like a, a car lot, you could walk around the car lot looking at cars, but with the idea that once you purchased a car, you had to uh, take on legal Jewish status if you wanted to own the car. So. In, in a word, Gentiles could visit the synagogue and they could um, kind of uh, chat with the rabbi and, and ask about becoming a member of the synagogue, but eventually they had to take on uh, covenant membership if they wanted to receive all the rights and benefits of covenant membership and uh, uh, blessings and things like that. So look at verse 21. Look at my commentary. Uh, this is the ESV. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, um, we all know that your average Christian commentary is going to tell us that under the law here means to be under subjection to keeping the Torah. Those of you who those of you who Gentiles are seeking to become Torah observant, don't you listen to the law? And what Paul is basically going to begin to set up in these first five or six verses that we're going to look at, according to your traditional Christian understanding of these passages, is that these Gentile Christians are seeking to retain their belief in Jesus, but at the same time, they want to add to their belief in Jesus. They want to add Torah observance, and the result will equal genuine salvation. So, your basic Christian commentary is going to tell you that the Gentile Christians, or the Gentile uh, members, of the, the readers of the letter, were were seeking to to uh, follow down a path of salvation that was defined as Jesus plus Torah. Jesus plus Torah. And that's essentially how most Christian commentators are going to spin the passage. And within that uh, limited understanding or that, that, that interpretation of, of Galatians, they're going to come to a conclusion that Paul is going to forbid these Gentiles from taking on uh, Torah observance in addition to faith in Jesus, because that would be law plus works equals, I'm sorry, it would be faith plus works equals salvation. Faith in Jesus plus works, as in works of the flesh or works of law or or uh, merit theology. Faith plus works equals salvation. Of course, any good, uh, genuine, good and genuine Christian today would understand that that equation is wrong. Faith plus works does not equal salvation. It's faith plus nothing that equals salvation. It's for by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. boast Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so we all know that it, we cannot add works to salvation or add works to faith to equal salvation. So basically, your average Christian is going to see that Torah observance is the works that the Gentiles are trying to add to their faith, and therefore they're going to uh, forfeit their faith if they try to add works to it. But I think that, that, that while that is a good and well-meaning application that we can walk away with from a, from a spiritual perspective, it's not the best historical way to understand the passage, and to be sure it does a disservice to um, the Torah itself, because I don't think that Paul is is does needs to combat that type of theology at this point in time. Instead, when he says, "Tell me, those of you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law?" Let's see what I have to say in my commentary. As we've already discussed elsewhere in this commentary, 
The phrase under the law can carry with it a, var a variety of meanings, each depending on the specific context in which it is found. And I say in my commentary that here, the phrase likely refers to Jewish status as desired by those Gentiles wishing to please the huckstering influencers. I call them huckstering because earlier Paul um, uh, reveals that he doesn't think that the, the influencers, uh, the Judaizers, actually have the Gentiles' uh, best interest at heart. And later on he actually even reveals that he believes that these influencers don't even keep the Torah, even though they seek to make these... Um, they desire to have these Gentiles circumcised. They themselves do not even follow the Torah. We're going to learn that later on, either in chapter 5 or 6 of this same book. And so I call them huckstering. You know, they're kind of these door-to-door -door salesmen who are, from the perspective of the um, people answering the door, they're undesirable. They're undesired. And so there's this sense that, from Paul's perspective, that even though these um, influencers might be either fellow countrymen, meaning they're, they're, they're fellow circumcised Jews, or perhaps they are former Gentiles, meaning they've already gone the, the, the whole process and become proselyte converts themselves, thus now they're legally recognized Jews. Either way, um, from Paul's perspective, because they are teaching another gospel, a gospel of ethnicity, and Torah observance, as opposed to a gospel of, uh, of uh, faith in Yeshua alone for genuine covenant membership, a faith that extends to Gentiles as Gentiles. Because of that feature of their gospel, of their good news, Paul's going to consider them as unwanted, right? right? Remember, these are the ones who spuck, snuck in, uh, they snuck in secretly to spy out the liberty that the Gentiles had. We read about that earlier in chapters one and two about these these uh, influencers, these agitators, these these uh, Judaizers that the, the people that the Christians call. So tell me, you who want to be under the law, viz you who want to be counted as legally recognized Jews in the community of Israel. This is what the phrase under the law could mean here. Those of you who desire to take on legal Jewish status, do you not listen to the law? Now, there's another way we could be reading this phrase under the law. Instead of saying taking on legal Jewish status, you know, the phrase under the law there, it could alternately, as I say in my context, since in ancient Israel, uh, as with today, to be a good Jew means to be uh, to also be faithful to the Torah, right? A good Jew is a Jew who's faithful to the Torah. A good Jew is a Jew who upholds God's words and is respectful of Torah, not someone who thumbs his nose at the Torah and, and tries to seek to be out from underneath the uh, um, responsibility of the Torah. That would be a bad Jew. So a good Jew is someone who is in love with Torah, is in love with God, in love with Torah. Remember what we read about in the Shema, there, Shema right there, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words, what words? The words of Torah. These words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. This is a good Jew. This is a good Jew. A good Jew keeps Torah. And this is the way religious Jews thought in Paul's day. This is the same way religious Jews think today. The religious Jews of today, the 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 what people typically recognized as the Orthodox or the ultra-Orthodox. These are the people who recognize themselves or uh, consider themselves as good, upstanding Jews. And by comparison, when they look at the secular Jews, Jews who don't really keep Torah, Jews who don't keep kosher, Jews who don't uh, keep the festival, Jews who don't wear tzitzit or keep a mezuzah on their door or, or uh, things like that. In other words, Jews who don't attend synagogue, Jews, Jews who just are secular and, and, and um, kind of humanistic in their thinking, 
the religious Jews don't uh, really uh, think too well of those types of Jews. They think of them as bad Jews. Jews, nonetheless, but not the best type of Jews. Understand what I mean? So we have the same kind of same thing going on at Paul's day. A good Jew is a Jew who keeps a Torah-based lifestyle. So if Paul simply means under the law to mean under subjection to the Torah as a whole, and specifically the halakha of whatever Judaism that you're converting to, whether it be Orthodox or Reform or Conservative, you know, whatever those equivalents would have been in Paul's day, then we could read the phrase this way as well. Tell, we, Paul could also be saying, tell me you who want to be in subjection to the Torah lifestyle as adjudicated by the halakha of the influencers. Okay? Understand there's two different ways we could read under the law there. So, this halakha that we're uh, discussing, the halakha of the influencers, specifically this particular works of the law, this particular um, spin on Torah observance, as we've discussed uh, elsewhere and as we've discovered from extra-biblical sources, was staunchly against allowing Gentiles to come into close community proximity for fear of the pagan defilement they supposedly transmitted. All of that paganism we, that that we described in uh, a moment ago without you know about the standard uh, greco-roman lifestyle all of that was uh, a threat to the religious jew and therefore there was this this distance that he kept as it were from gentile activities and from gentiles and from paganism and he kept himself at a distance from all that because there was this idea of um defilement both of the flesh and of the mind that he sought to steer clear of and and in a sense, that's always a good thing because um, we are, in fact, commanded to be holy, even as God is holy. And so you can re- kind of remind yourself of the four uh, stipulations that were passed down from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The You know, the four prohibitions that we read about in that chapter, about uh, the things that the Jerusalem Council, the, the leadership there of James and Peter and such, these believing Jews... We're, we're handing this halakha to the Gentile Christians who are seeking to be counted as righteous in the community there. Remember, these four prohibitions were essentially prohibitions against idolatry and distancing yourself as a Gentile from the paganism that was all around you. So we can see uh, that this type of halakha that was being practiced in the Jewish community was a good and righteous one in a sense. But the the Judaisms of Paul's day, many of them, had kind of taken it to an extreme. And instead of just avoiding paganism altogether, they kind of were throwing out, they, the Judaisms of Paul's day, were throwing out the baby with the bathwater, and the baby, in this analogy, were the Gentiles as well. And so, basically, many of the Judaisms of Paul's day were even going so far as to reject not just the paganism, but the Gentiles who were associated with that paganism, and therefore they were uh, uh, kind of uh, suspicious, as it were, of Gentiles altogether. And this was a halakha that Paul had to break with. This was a halakha that he probably, in fact, we most definitely know that he uh, towed this halakha before. He, he admits it in uh, Galatians chapter 2, around verse 17 or 18 or somewhere around there, where he says, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So he used to believe in this nationalism that, that taught that the Torah was for Jews only and that righteousness was a Jewish-only uh, concept. 
And as a result, Gentiles were outside of membership capabilities. But now, with his eyes opened by Messiah, he can now understand that the mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles as Gentiles were included as full-fledged covenant members within Israel without having to change their ethnicity from Gentile to Jew. And you can read about this aspect of the mystery of the gospel specifically in Ephesians chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Start in chapter 2 and read through the end of the chapter of Ephesians, and you can read about the mystery of the gospel there. All right, so in my, in my commentary, I say, thus to conform to the halacha of the influencers would mean to have to eventually reject Gentile Christian fellowship, something Peter succumbed to in chapter 2, which we read about around verses, two, verses say, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 in chapter 2. Uh, which Paul and Peter had this disagreement about, right? Peter setting, uh, uh, setting himself apart from the Gentiles when the men from James showed up, the, you know, the black hats, as it were. Uh, he pretended as if he was always eating with the Gentile, with the Jews, but when the Jews weren't there, he ate with the Gentiles, but when the J- Jews showed up, he separated himself from the Gentiles. All that nonsense. This is the halacha that the influencers were basically pushing uh, with you know with their Jewish only covenant membership uh, concept, and this is a con- this is a halakha that Paul's going to say, this is wrong. This is against the Torah. This is against the gospel. This is against God's program of bringing Gentiles into uh, Israel as Gentiles. So it's something that Peter succumbed to in chapter two, two, but it's something that Paul would have nothing to do with. All right, let's keep reading. Uh, verse twenty two and twenty three. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay, Paul's going to introduce this allegory, which I'm calling a midrash. And in my commentary, I say it's by way of the biblical narrative about father Abraham and his offspring. I believe at this point in his letter that Paul wishes the influencers themselves to actually hear his teaching. Remember, um, the letter was probably being read to the communities that he wrote. So Paul probably envisioned some in the crowd to be the very detractors he so carefully needed to expose as false. I go on to say in my inf- in my commentary, perhaps if he, Paul, appealed further to Scripture directly, perhaps even the influencers might be shocked back to some semblance of reality and give up trying to persuade those Gentiles from converting to Judaism for the wrong reasons. Whatever the reasons for introducing this allegory at this point in time um, <clears throat> into his letter, uh, the interpretation of the allegory is quite to the point. So listen up. There's a line of demarcation that's being drawn in the sand between who is a genuine covenant member and who is not. In fact, those who are of Messiah, those who are believers, are understood by Paul's midrash here to be the legitimate sons while those of the circumcision faction, right, the influencers, the Judaizers, they are understood by Paul to be illegitimate sons, bastards, if you will, and veritable slaves for sure. Now, this is stinging. This is really harsh because Paul is actually taking sides. And um, he's he's really uh, sending a, a, a chilling message to the influencers that, look, you guys are on the wrong side of the equation. And the side that you're on is not favorable. The side that you're on is actually a side that's not a side that can be sustained from Scripture. And so Paul's going to jump into this allegory. 
Now let's keep reading my commentary, and I think this will make sense. The son of Abraham by the slave woman, I go on to say near the bottom of page 143. The son of Abraham by the slave woman is understood to be Ishmael, even though he's not named directly. Directly, You'll have to recall this from reading your um, Bible itself. Go back and read through the Abrahamic narrative where we know starting in about, say, chapter uh, 16, Abraham takes Hagar as his handmaiden, and he sleeps with her in order to produce what would otherwise be the promised son that God spoke about way back in Genesis chapter 12. So, in that particular Abrahamic narrative of Genesis, we see that Abraham basically does, he takes matters into his own hands with Hagar, and he does this with Sarah's consent, so it's not something that Sarah had disapproved of. Sarah actually had made the suggestion, hey, why don't you just take Hagar after all? In, in Middle Eastern practices of those day, the handmaiden was considered legally legal property of Abraham, so it wasn't like he was committing some form of adultery in, in his eyes. Uh, Hagar was, was Sarah's uh, handmaiden, so it was, it was a legally uh, allowable procedure from their perspective. So the, the son that's born of the Hagar-Abraham union, of course, is Ishmael. And Paul doesn't name Ishmael directly, but we know that's who he's referring to when he says the, the son of the slave woman. And this uh, particular part of his analogy is likened to those in his day who were seeking to be justified by human means, that is, by works of the law, by circumcision, by legal Jewish identity. In other words, this was the other gospel that Paul talked about earlier on in the book of uh, Galatians chapter 1. This this other gospel that was being preached is a gospel of circumcision. It's a gospel of works of the law. It's a gospel of works. It's a gospel of legalism. It's a gospel of legal Jewish identity. And so because of those uh, factors, it is a gospel that is false. It's a gospel that is destined to fail. It's a gospel that will not set you free. It's a gospel instead of slavery. Comparatively, the son of Abraham by the free woman, which we know to be Isaac from reading the, the narratives, right? If we were to continue reading through Genesis and not stop at Genesis 16, but keep going to 17, 18, and 19, we find that Abraham eventually sleeps with Sarah, his wife, not his handmaiden, but his wife. He sleeps with Sarah, even though he's past childbearing age. Uh, his body itself is past that age. Um, he and Sarah do, in fact, go on to produce a, a son, and this son is Isaac, not Ishmael. All right. So that's what happens. We already know that we all, those of you who are Christians and are listening to my commentary, you remember all of this from your uh, Sunday school lessons. I hope. So comparatively, in his little midrash here, the son of Abraham by the free woman Isaac is likened by Paul in his allegory to those seeking to be justified by faith in Yeshua as the promised Messiah without becoming Jewish first. We're at the top of page 177, 144. So, to strengthen the truth of his illustration, Shaul mentions that Ishmael was born at a time when Abraham succumbed to his flesh, the way ordinary human beings procreate, while Isaac, by comparison, was born not according to human effort, but by divine fiat, after Abraham and Sarah were already, in reality, too old to physically copulate for the sake of creating children. To be sure, 
Paul reminds the readers of God's sworn oath to Abraham and calls Isaac the promised child. You see where that's going? So we've got this stark uh, contrast going on between two of the sons of Abraham. They're both sons of Abraham. They're both vying for the legitimate title as sons of Abraham, just like the influencers were probably using Abraham as their father, as their model figure, saying, look, we are sons of Abraham because we are physically circumcised. We are circumcised according to the flesh, according to the Genesis 17 covenant stipulations. We are the legitimate sons. Therefore, you Gentiles who wish to be counted also as legitimate sons of Abraham, you need to do what all sons of Abraham are required to do, and that is to take on physical circumcision of the flesh. Genesis 17, read it. It's there in black and white. How can you dispute that? So it's it's as really it's as if the, the influencers themselves, the, gen, the Judaizers, it seems like they've got an airtight argument when it, if you take the position of circumcision of the flesh. But Paul takes that uh, that story in the book of Genesis chapter 17 where Abraham gets circumcised and he reminds the, the influencers of the context of the story and of the feature of circumcision of the flesh itself by putting it back into the context of not only the promise of the son that God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, but also as the narrative plays itself out working from 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 and 18, 19 and keep going. So, uh, let's keep reading my commentary, then I'll go back and explain the allegory from the way I want you to understand it from my perspective. Uh, Verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Here's where Paul's going to take the the story itself as probably uh, uh, most naturally understood from the influencer's perspective about Abraham and physical circumcision and things like that. And he's going to turn it on its head. He's not going to change the passage. Rather, he's going to infuse the passage with its God-given spiritual understanding that we as believers are privy to once our eyes have been opened by the Messiah, opened by the Spirit, and the blindness has been removed. This is the way that we should be reading the Torah and understanding the Torah from its natural and spiritual perspective. Here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to say from an allegorical perspective, these two women, Abraham's two wives, right? These two legal women, right? I, I, I keep having to stress that point because it's not that Hagar was an illegitimate wife. She was his legal wife from a perspective of a handmaiden as was recognized by the... Um, the uh, 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 the culture of that day it was it was it was allowable although it wasn't advantageous uh, understandable um, to have multiple wives still wasn't the the, the 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 way that God had originally planned it I believe that God originally wanted one man and one woman to be joined but the um, the social culture of that day had allowed for more than one wife so to say in other words it was it was a kind of a polygamous uh, culture. Uh, to be sure, one wife and, a, and at least a handmaiden, if you want to use that term handmaiden, and steer away, steer clear of the term wife when we're talking about Hagar. But nevertheless, um, uh, Abraham didn't really think he was doing anything wrong by uh, going to bed with Hagar. It wasn't like he was outside of his uh, cultural boundaries, is what I'm trying to say. He he felt he was still within the boundaries of, of the culture of his day to sleep with Hagar. But Paul's going to take this 
feature of the narrative in Genesis. And he's going to describe these two women as two covenants. And he's going to describe one as Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. And we're going to talk about the other other um, covenant here in a moment. But let's let's just camp out on verse 24. The Greek word for allegorically in this verse is the root word allegoreo, as we can probably understand that's where we get our Greek word allegory into English, right? The Greek word is just really a transliteration into English. Shaul now reveals the core truth of his midrash, right? The part that he really wants both the Galatian Gentiles as well as the influencers who are probably listening to the letter being read. He really wants both of them to listen up. This is the core truth of what he's trying to reveal to both of them. The core truth is that is is by explaining that he's referring to two opposing covenants. They are not even two covenants that are really in agreement with one another. They actually oppose one another at a core level. And this is illustrated using the unnamed Sarah and the named Hagar. Did you notice that? He only actually names Hagar by name. He only mentions her in the passage. He doesn't actually name Sarah, even though he knows, we know it's Sarah because he says these two women. One of the women gave birth to Ishmael. One of the women gave birth to Isaac. And it's obvious which one is which. He doesn't have to go back and give them a history lesson. As such, we shouldn't have to go back as well. Paul also wants his readers, I go on to say in my commentary, to understand that to expect right standing with Hashem, that is, uh, salvation or covenant membership or righteousness, whatever you want to fill in the blank there for right standing. He wants his readers to understand that um, to expect right standing with Hashem according to the flesh, that is, according to Jewish social status, is to be identified with a covenant of slavery, the covenant with Hagar and her offspring. So, that's the first of the two covenants that he's trying to put on one side of this coin. He's got Hagar, which is slavery, and Ishmael. He's got that on one side of this equation. And then when we get to verse 25 and 26, as we keep reading, I'll I'll read through my commentary first, and then I'll go back and explain the relevant parts that I want you to catch. Verse 25 and 26 read, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now he describes the other side of his um, illustration. Remember, he's got two uh, opposing covenants going on. And he's using this midrash, or this allegory, to describe the central truth of these two opposing covenants. Here's what I say, Hazar, I describe it in my commentary. This covenant with Hagar and her offspring relates to where the Torah of Moshe was given, uh, that is in, in, in Mount Sinai, because that's where the present Judaisms of Paul's day all look to for the origins of the nation of Israel as a people, right? Recall that uh, Exodus chapter uh, 20 is the giving of the Torah on where? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And so Judaism recognizes that that this is the beginning of Israel as a people group under the covenant description of Israel as described by God. God calls Israel together as a people group at Mount Sinai and he officiates a ceremony that is known as the giving of the of the 10 words the Asrat Hadvarim the 
the beginning of the Ten, Ten Commandments. And this becomes a legally binding ceremony between God the husband and Israel the bride. And it is there at Mount Sinai that God basically becomes wedded to his bride. We could even take the analogy of the um, Jewish wedding where we've got the chuppah, the canopy, the talit that's being held up by the four uh, corners. You know, the, the four men holding the the, the, uh, the poles, holding up the talit. If you've ever visited uh, a Jewish congregation or seen a Jewish wedding on TV or on YouTube or something like that, you'll see that they, usually the bride and the groom have four friends that are holding up a talit by the four corners, and the, uh, the, the bride and the groom are underneath the canopy. Well, in that analogy, Judaism goes on to explain that this is kind of like what took place at Mount Sinai, and the, the talit is the cloud that covered Sinai that day, and the, um, uh, the the bride is Israel, and the husband is God himself, and the, uh, the, 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 the chuppah is that canopy, the talit, and the words of Torah are the, uh, the, the ketubah, the, 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 the marriage document itself. And that makes the whole ceremony a binding legal, a legally binding agreement between the two parties, between the bride and the groom. Okay, so basically all of Judaism today, as as with the Judaism of Paul's day, uh, revered Mount Sinai as the the birthplace of Israel proper as a people group, because that's where they collectively received the words of Torah, which are uh, viewed in Judaism as the ketubah, the marriage document, the legally binding contract between God and his bride, is the Torah itself, the ten words, the binding of these two people together between uh, this document. You guys understand my analogy? And you can have a chat with any um, knowledgeable Jew, and they'll, they'll basically explain it the same way I've described it. So all of Judaism still reveres Mount Sinai. And so I think that's why Paul's using Sinai as in his allegory, as is rightfully should be, because it's there that God covenantally married it, married as it were his bride Israel. Even though Paul specifically, I go on to say, states that Hagar equals Mount Sinai and corresponds to present Jerusalem, oddly enough, Paul does not mention Sarah by name, nor does he say which mountain and city she stands for, if any. Isn't that kind of odd? But we already know that that the other mountain, even though he doesn't name it, the other mountain is is uh, Sarah, and the other city, um, which he is going to mention, is Jerusalem above. So uh, we've got these two Jerusalems, present Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above. Now, I go on to say in my commentary, what he does say specifically is that the Jerusalem that is above is free, in opposition to the slave city, earthly Jerusalem, and that this heavenly Jerusalem is our mother, and we're going to read more about these distinctions below. But for now, let me uh, continue reading my commentary. I'll read the next two paragraphs, and then I'm going to go back and share with you uh, a little, uh, short little paper that I put together this week called Natural versus Spiritual. It does not show up in my commentary, but it's, it's um, I think it's uh, vital for us to understand this analogy in the correct light. In my commentary, I go on to conclude, I'm sure in Paul's mind, it is a sad declaration that his beloved and beautiful earthly Zion, the city of God spoken of in Psalm 87.3, has to be identified in his allegory as a city in slavery with, his ch with her children in order for his readers to come to their senses. But this is the length to which Paul will go to 
uh, well, the length of which Paul will go to shock his readers into reality. To flirt with the prospect of going through conversion, right? He's speaking to the Gentiles, right? To flirt with the prospect of going through conversion for the wrong reasons is to be seen in God's eyes as going back into slavery. You understand my analogy of two doors, two covenants, two choices that are set before the Gentile believers? Recall that if you are a Gentile in Paul's day and you had not yet become a believer, then basically if you were flirting with the idea of conversion for the sake of covenant membership, then basically you're going to enter through a doorway that will not result in genuine salvation. Therefore, it will not result in lasting covenant membership from Paul's perspective. And so, this becomes a dangerous choice for the Gentile who's not yet a true believer. Conversely, however, or in comparison, for the Gentile who is a genuine believer, then uh, to go through the door of conversion isn't as, as dangerous, perhaps, because you're, you're still going to be a believer. And I don't believe that Paul um, taught that a genuine believer, if he were in fact genuine, could lose their salvation. Therefore, I think Paul's primary... Um, concern is for those Gentiles whom he's not quite sure are actually true believers or not. Those people who I described a few weeks back as in decision mode. People that you encounter in every church or synagogue around the world. People who maybe claim the believer to be believers, but in, in their heart God knows that they are not. Or people who do not claim to be believers, but are perhaps seeking are, you know, they're just kind of shopping around, to use that analogy. They're, they're on the parking lot, but they haven't yet bought the car. They haven't made a commitment to Jesus yet. They haven't, they're, they're in the church. They're there with friends or family, and they haven't yet claimed uh, uh, loyalty to Yeshua. If you ask them if they're a believer, they'll say they're not sure. Um, and they're not really hostile to the gospel the way uh, uh, secular unbelievers are today. People, you know, people who, are, who don't claim any allegiance to Jesus, people who don't grace the doors of church, things like that. So I think Paul's really mostly concerned, as naturally he should be, as any pastor would be, he's mostly concerned for these kind of people who are who can get swept up along with the uh um the policies that that go that take place in, in churches and synagogue circles, things like that. So it's in as in effect, all of the Gentiles are being swept up in this going towards this door of conversion, whether they're genuine believers or not and those who are not genuine believers are in danger of of actually being duped into thinking that their genuine that their covenant membership is uh incumbent upon their becoming Jews first legally recognized Jews so those are the ones that Paul's going to be describing as slavery because it's spiritual bondage if you go through the doorway of conversion and you have not yet taken on uh, genuine faith in Messiah yet. In other words, the old man is still in control. That's why you're still in slavery. Okay, and we're going to talk about that here in a, in a moment. So, Paul, basically I say in my commentary, to flirt with the prospect of going to conversion for the wrong reason is to be seen in God's eyes as going back into slavery. And the emphasis is there is on the for the wrong reason, right? Their conversion is for the sake of supposedly becoming covenant, genuine, lasting covenant members, and specifically for the sake of supposedly be, taking on the status of righteous and the status of salvation. I go on to say, as is to be expected with most commentaries that one might find in your average Christian bookstore, the historic church has seen in these verses proof positive that the old covenant stemming from Mount Sinai represents slavery and must be replaced by the new covenant stemming from the heavenly Jerusalem that offers freedom. 
I think that is the given when it comes to uh, reading through most Christian commentaries. Those of you who are uh, are um, those of you who have come from a church background and are now attending Messianic congregations, or those of you who still attend Christian churches and are considering attending a Messianic synagogue, these are some of the um, differing sermons and opinions and interpretations that you're going to hear that are in somewhat, uh, uh, what, what do we say, in, in conflict with one another. You're going to have most Christian pastors and commentaries saying that Paul is... This is Paul's impassioned plea to the Gentile Christians to run away from Judaism and the bondage that it represents. Run away from Mount Sinai and Torah. Run away from from conversion and Torah observance and circumcision of the flesh, and all of that. All of that represents the old order of things, the old dispensation that's been replaced by the new, the old covenant that's been replaced by the new, the old priesthood that's been replaced by the new, the old um, man that's been replaced by the new. All of that is old. You need to, and all of that represents slavery. You need to steer clear of that and come over into the new. And that's basically what you're going to get if you attend a, a traditional church with its uh traditional uh, interpretation of the book of Galatians. I go on to uh, say, however, on my commentary, top of page 145, however, since we know that Paul is not contrasting the Old Testament Torah with the New Testament gospel of Christ, rather, but rather, he is contrasting the works of the law, proselyte conversion coupled with legal Jewish status, with genuine faith in Yeshua, then we don't need to denigrate the Torah in order to make this midrash have genuine application for today's Christians. You understand what I mean by that? We don't need to uh, to interpret Paul's use of the allegory there as a slamming of Torah itself. We talked about this last week also, where it's, it's really um, inconsistent to describe Paul as having really a, a negative view of Torah in one part of his letters and in a positive uh, view of Torah in another part of his letters where Paul sings the praises of Torah like in Romans 3.31, Romans 7 around verse 25, uh, uh, things like that where he says the law is holy and righteous and good earlier on in, in Romans 7 and then comes along and says that the Torah is bad, you need to steer clear of it, it's something that, that's, that's slavery and bondage and things like that. So, um, it, it turns Paul into what I described uh, last week as a schizophrenic uh, believer, a person who just goes back and forth on his views of Torah based on whatever audience he's trying to tickle their ears at the moment. And I don't think that's a very uh, safe way to interpret Paul. I don't think it's a very uh, consistent way, and I, I don't think it's a very fair way to, to, to describe Paul. So I go on to conclude my commentary. So much more could be said about the wrong way to understand Paul's allegory here, but I think I've made my point adequately, so we'll leave off for now. Okay, so we've read my commentary. Let me take just a final 10 minutes real quick. Hopefully I can do this in 10 minutes. Uh, this is something that I want to treat the uh, readers in my live class to. Uh, the, those of you who are with me in the live class right now, let me just uh, pull up this very small uh, study that I put together to uh, help, I think, understand the allegory a lot better, help understand the analogy. Um, basically, what we've got is, in Paul's day, um, as with today, I think we've got some terminology and some concepts in the, in the Bible that aren't always easily understood 
uh, as we're studying through the Bible, and it's easy for us to come to some wrong conclusions. And so in my final 10 minutes, let me just describe what I'd call, um, what I'm going to call natural versus spiritual. And uh, I think this will go a long way towards understanding not only the allegory that Paul just described here in Galatians, but also to understanding some of the other um, uh, descriptions that Paul uses in his letters to Galatians, in his, in his uh, teachings to Galatians and in Romans. So for those of you who are with me in the class, look at your screen right now. I've got some terminology that I want to show you. And I put this together just this morning, really. It didn't take me very long to, to whip it together. It's only just a very short list and then a paragraph to explain what I'm doing. All right, so let me read the terminology for a moment first. I've got this little table that I put together, and there are two columns. There's a column on the left and a column on the right. And the column on the left describes, uh, uses some adjectives and adverbs, and they're words that describe basically the existence of external realities and actions. And so look at this list. We've got temporal, natural, flesh, old man, external, earthly, outward, physical. I could have put, I put, I could have put slavery up there, but I didn't for a reason. But basically, you can see my list. They're all kind of synonymous terms, right? The terminology all kind of fits together in the same category. And then we can compare this category list to the ones on the right. Look at that list. Eternal, spiritual, spirit, new man, internal, heavenly, inwardly, spiritual again. All right. So notice the comparison and contrast that's going on. So if I look at the two list and look at the two against one another, we've got temporal versus eternal, natural versus spiritual, flesh versus spirit, old man versus new man, eternal versus internal, I'm sorry, external versus internal. Uh, uh, I suppose, I could, yeah, I've got eternal up there. I'm sorry, external versus internal, earthly versus heavenly, outwardly versus inwardly, and physical versus spiritual. And this is listed, not exhaustive. If I would have taken more time, I'm sure we could have come up with some more. And some of these are words that you actually hear about in the Torah as you're reading through the Bible. And in fact, we used a few of them tonight. Uh, the two that say uh, earthly and heavenly. Uh, Paul describes, remember, in uh, Galatians there, he described um, uh, the... Uh, um, Jerusalem in verse, um, uh, let's see, uh, was it in verse 23? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by slave, one by free one, and the son of the son was born according to the flesh, while the son of was born through promise. I'm sorry, maybe it was verse 24, 25, and 26, somewhere around there. Um, two covenants, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, she's Hagar. Mount, Mount uh, verse 2526, uh, Mount Sinai, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. She's in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she's our mother. Uh, maybe I'm not seeing the verse, the, the, the um, uh, terminology that I'm looking for just yet there, but follow along with me and I don't think you'll get lost. In point of fact, a good number of important biblical concepts, I go on to say in this short little excerpt, um, a good number of biblical concepts are actually conveyed in both temporal and eternal aspects. So, just play along with me for a moment, all right? This is my understanding of a lot of the way the Bible presents itself to us as readers. The Bible actually recognizes both external realities and actions, as well as internal realities and motivations. 
And so let me single out a sampling for our review here. Now look at my little list here. This is just a short sample. I'm sure some of you could probably come up with some more. But here's a few of them that I've noticed. We've got covenant membership on the list. Covenant membership can be seen from both a temporal aspect as well as a eternal aspect. It can be both natural as well as spiritual. We can have covenant membership of the flesh as well as covenant membership of the spirit. Understand what I mean? We can have external covenant membership and internal covenant membership. And we know this to be true because Paul's now talking about covenants. And that's one of the words I wanted to look at. He says that in verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. So there's two types of ways of looking at covenants. There's a covenant from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and she's Hagar. Well, which one do you think that, which list do you think that corresponds to? That corresponds to the list on the left, on the, the list on the left, the temporal, the natural, the flesh, the old man, the external, the earthly, the outwardly, the physical. That's the Hagar covenant. That's the, the slavery covenant. That's the one that Paul puts the um, earthly Jerusalem into. And then the comparison to that is the eternal, spiritual, spirit, new man, internal, heavenly, inwardly, spiritual, that he puts Jerusalem above, right? The heavenly Jerusalem, he puts that one in the right category. So that's covenant membership. We can see that on two different levels. Um, and in some of these, ca- in some, in some of these cases, uh, they contrast with one another. And in other cases, they actually um, compare to one another. In other words, you can have both. Or you, and in some cases you can have both, and in other cases you can only have one or the other. So when it comes to covenant membership, you can have covenant membership in both places. You can be a natural covenant member in Israel, and you can be a spiritual covenant member in Israel at the same time. And we know this is to be true because Romans chapter 2, around the last few verses, 28, 29, somewhere around there, uh, Paul describes, in fact, I think I've got it pulled up here, uh, near the bottom of, uh, of the chapter there, Paul talks about Jews who are outwardly and Jews who are inwardly. He talks about circumcision that is outwardly and circumcision that is inward. And he talks about a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision of the heart. And in that little list, in that, in that comparison in Romans, Paul is basically uh, helping us understand that Jews who are covenant members of the flesh are genuine covenant members, but they're not lasting covenant members. They're only covenant members of the flesh. They're temporal covenant members. They're physical covenant members. Versus covenant members who also have a circumcised heart, that is to say Jews such as himself who have come to believe in Yeshua, have then graduated into the list on the right, which is eternal covenant membership, spiritual covenant membership. He still retains his his covenant membership according to the flesh. He's still a fleshly Jew, meaning he's still a physical Jew. He hasn't suddenly somehow become a non-physical Jew. He's still a physical Jew. His physical circumcision didn't disappear when he took on circumcision of the heart. Rather, he now has both. He carries within his flesh the circumcision that he received when he was eight days old as a baby, and at the same time, now he has received circumcision of the heart. So he has both covenant memberships that he can speak of. He can speak of himself in present tense as a Jew, and he can speak of himself in present tense as a spiritual Jew as well. So, in that list, I go on to describe uh, love for God is both on a natural level as well as a spiritual level. In other words, people who are not believers can actually have a natural love for God, even though they don't believe in God, they, they don't. They wouldn't describe it that way. Of course, they would. They wouldn't say, "I don't believe in God, and yet I love Him." They would simply be 
but uh, they would simply uh, not fully understand that from God's perspective, there's no belief. But from their head knowledge, from their head perspective, from their limited uh, pers- understanding of the situation, that they actually do have a love for God. So we could call it a head knowledge uh, love for God, which is still love for God, right? It's real, but it's only in their head. Are you guys understanding what I mean by that when I say only in their head? It's not a heart knowledge for God. It's not a circumcised heart love for God. It's only a, a head love for God, and it's genuine. So it's a, it's a genuine mental uh, uh, capacity to, to say that they dis- love for God, and it describes a lifestyle that is uh, that motivates them towards um, obeying God, even though it's not yet a, salva- a, a saving love for God. Then we have love for each other, right? Love for God, love for man, right? We see that uh, your average man can love each other, even uh, love his fellow man, even though he does, he's not a Christian, he can love one another. Uh, it's real love, right? It's real love, but it's not saving love. It's not love that will take him into eternity. It's love that will disappear once he dies. It's love that will not carry over into the age to come. And we can just go down the list here. We've got salvation. Salvation can take place on a natural level. You can be saved from a flood. You can be saved from a fire. You can be saved from drowning. You can be saved from dying. You can be saved from um, going to prison. You can be saved from a calamity, right? You can be saved from um, being uh, 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 tortured or something like that. There's there's any number of descriptions of of physical salvation that don't necessarily describe what takes place in the heart and what takes place on a heavenly level when you enter into uh, salvation with God. So there's physical salvation and then there's spiritual salvation. So that's what I mean by salvation. It makes it on the list. Then we've got food and drink, right? There's physical food and drink. There's bread and there's drink. There's bread and water on a physical level. We all need that to to live, right? That's why I put life on there, life and food and drink. And then we've got the spiritual counterparts. We've got spiritual life, spiritual food, spiritual drink. Recall that Yeshua describes himself as that spiritual bread that come down from heaven. He's He offers that spiritual water that if a man drinks will thirst no more. So he's talking about a spiritual hungering and thirsting that once you partake of his flesh and drink of his blood, then you will no longer hunger and thirst. So that's all the spiritual side. But that doesn't discount the very fact that there is real life and real food and real drink that we all must partake of or else our physical life will also cease to be, right? If you stop eating and drinking eventually, you will stop living physically. All right, So, the, but those are real. They're real things. They're just not uh, to be confused with the spiritual counterparts. And so you kind of get the idea where I'm going with that. There's, there's, there's real clothing and there's spiritual clothing, right? We're, we are to be clothed with the garments of Messiah. We are to put on Messiah. And so there's spiritual clothing that we put on. But this is not to be confused with the physical clothing that we wear every day so that we do not walk about naked. Understand my analogy. We've got physical righteousness, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, good works as it were. This is kind of also a righteousness that we could describe as just um, people who do the right thing uh, even though they're not spiritually righteous, they're they're, they're nevertheless uh, morally righteous or behaviorally righteous. That's the righteousness on a physical level. Uh, And then of course there's spiritual righteousness. And then we've got Jewish identity, uh, which is similar to covenant membership above. Then there's spiritual Jewish identity that we just kind of read about in Romans chapter 2. 
We've got the identity of Israel on two levels. Remember, Paul talks in Romans again. Uh, I think it's chapter 9, not all Israel is, is Israel. So we've got two Israels going on. We've got a, a national Israel, which is a larger group. Then we've got a smaller group called remnant Israel. So we've got an Israel that exists within an Israel. So a circle within a circle. So we've got two types of Israel going on. A, a physical Israel, and then we've got a, a spiritual Israel, if you want to use physical Jew and natural Jew analogies all over again. Um, we've got physical circumcision, and we've got heart circumcision, right? Physical and spiritual. We've got Torah observance on a physical level, and then we've got Torah observance, which is seen by God as the fulfillment of Torah, so Torah observance on a, on a spiritual level going on. And then lastly, we've got good works in general on a physical level, which is kind of the same as the righteousness. And then we've got the good works that God or foreordains that we can do once we come to faith in Messiah, that so it's good works on a spiritual level, good works that are otherwise impossible to do until you come to faith the Messiah. So I go on to say basically this in my commentary, or in this little ex, ex, uh, excursus here. Everything on the list above has a temporal as well as a corresponding eternal counterpart to it. The way to understand the overarching message of the Bible is to remind yourself that from God's eternal vantage point, both working in tandem produce the optimal effect and outcome. Thus, Temporal things in life should eventually graduate towards eternal things without necessarily sacrificing the temporal things themselves. You understand what I mean there? It's basically a good versus better principle. That is, to have physical life is good. Death is never good, right? Physical life is good, but to have the hope of eternal life along with physical life is better. Is everyone understanding what I mean there? So, Using this explanation, let's finalize what Paul was saying in his allegory there. Basically, what Paul is trying to get the Gentile readers to understand is that there's life in the here and now, and there's life in the age to come. If you wish to be counted as a member in the life in the age to come, that is to be saved, you must undergo a heart change that is spiritual circumcision. And this circumcision of the heart can only take place once you place your genuine trust and faith in Messiah and continue by the power of the Spirit within you. It's not something that can take place by a cutting away of the flesh, of the foreskin in the natural. You don't gain spiritual life by cutting away the physical foreskin of circumcision. It's not how it takes place. So that's what Paul's trying to get his Gentile members of his letter to understand. Taking on physical Jewish status, according to the flesh, unless you have already have a heart change, it's not going to do anything good, good for you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get you into uh, membership into Israel, but it, it, it's membership that's going to expire once you die. And the thing that is most important is membership in the life to come, the age to come, life in heaven, uh, genuine and lasting covenant membership. And so Paul would have his Gentile readers to understand this very crucial point. Which covenant do you want to be a member of? Do you want to be a member of the temporal covenant that God made with Israel on an earthly level where you do have blessings, but they're only blessings that are to be enjoyed in this life? They are blessings on a temporal level. They are blessings on a physical level. They are blessings on a this world level. Blessings that you will enjoy in this life, but it's a blessing that once you die, that's it. They do not carry over into the age to come. 
and you do not actually even get to um, enjoy life in the age to come. You will be uh, separated from God for eternity if you choose the temporal covenant membership. Or, Paul wants to understand using it as allegory, do you choose the eternal covenant package? Do you choose the doorway and the covenant which, which includes heart circumcision to be associated with the Jerusalem who's above. Do you choose this deal? Do you go, choose to go down that pathway, down that door, go through that doorway, which is Yeshua? He is the way, the truth, and the life to eternal covenant membership. This is the one in which you will um, enjoy a measure of blessing here as well, although there's probably going to be some persecution because you have now set yourself as an enemy against the adversary himself. You've now become an, uh, an adversary of the of Satan himself, and as such, you're going to incur spirit the spiritual um, wrath of 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 Satan himself. But you're also going to be included among the righteous because you have joined the community of faith. And so Paul wants the Gentiles to make the right choice. Choose life or choose death. Choose this door or choose that door. And only one of them is going to lead to life. The other is going to lead to death. And so I'm going to leave off now, and we'll pick this up again in two weeks after the Yom Kippur break of next week. We'll pick this up again as we continue through this analogy because Paul's going to uh, himself is going to continue talk about, talking about uh, these two covenants. In fact, he's going to bring the conclusion to his analogy, to his allegory in verse 30 of chapter 4, where he talks about, um, uh, are you are you a slave or are you a son? Uh, which one do you want to be? In fact, if I uh, pull up uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 30, uh, but what saith the scripture? Remember he talked about, do you listen to what the scriptures say? You who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Meaning you who want to be uh, counted as covenant members? Uh, taking on the Torah lifestyle? Do you even listen to the narrative found in the book of Genesis, which is considered one of the books of the law? Do you even listen to what the law is teaching? Uh, he said that in verse 21 of chapter 4. And now in verse 30, he's going to say, but what saith the scripture? And then he's going to really come to the conclusion of these two covenants. If you choose to, if you choose the covenant of slavery, which is the Hagar, uh, Mount Sinai, Ishmael, uh, works of the law, a physical covenant uh, side of the of, of the equation. If you go down that road, then the end of that is going to be that you're going to be cast out. And that's kind of jumping forward to, to verse 30 as a teaser. You're going to be cast out with the slave woman because that's what the narrative says. But if you choose the right side of the column, the, the other door, which is Yeshua, faith, eternal covenant membership, circumcision of the heart, uh, the Jerusalem which is above, um, the sonship, the genuine child of Abraham, the um, uh, the uh, the Jerusalem which is free, um, then according to chapter 4, verse 30, and according to the narrative that Paul is going to bring to our attention that we'll look at two weeks from now, then you will inherit. You will be the son of the inheritance. You will inherit you will gain that inheritance, and it brings us kind of full circle. You will be the heir, because he's going to use a, a, a form of that word, kleronomoi, uh, kleronomos again. The, you will be in the inheritance 
that we spoke about way back in uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1, 2, and 3. You're going to be the, 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 the son who inherits uh, all that the Father has designed for you. Amen? Amen. So with that, we'll leave off and we'll pick this up again two weeks. Again, take a break. Yom Kippur next week. Do not meet with us. We won't meet. We'll meet again in two weeks, okay? Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and I thank you for the opportunity to sit and study with the students. Once again, I pray that you'll allow these 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 uh, important truths to sink deep into our spiritual heart. I pray that we will not be simply... Uh, uh, members of the physical covenant of the earthly, of the fleshly, of the of the old man, but rather, Lord, we will, uh, in fact, uh, be counted among the the heavenly, the spiritual, the 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 um the uh, covenant which is lasting. Uh, we would be counted as those who are righteous because we are those who have circumcision of the heart, even if we also do have circumcision of the flesh, those of us who actually have that. I pray that you will uh, take us onward and upwards and higher to a place where we can understand the Scriptures from the spiritual perspective so that we can walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us through uh, Rosh Hashanah, through Yom Tov, the day of trumpets. I pray that you'll turn our hearts now towards Yom Kippur and this solemn day of assembly. Uh, help us to to press into Messiah and continue to know him, to seek him, and to grow in him, and to put on the, the, the garment of Messiah, to put on the mind of Messiah, to be filled with the spirit of Messiah, to let the words of the Messiah dwell richly within us. I pray, Lord, that you'll also continue to um, push us forward to uh, uh, into these fall festivals as we are reminded that these are the festivals of Messiah and that they remind us of his work and his finished work and the things that he is doing for us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him? serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>